This is Laura Rosenblum, co-host of the Pulse podcast. Our latest episode features an interview with Dr. Melinda Barnes, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs and Research at Roe. Roe is a patient-driven healthcare company that puts you in control of your health, building technology to make healthcare accessible, affordable, and maybe even enjoyable. Roe's nationwide physician and pharmacy networks power three digital health clinics, Roman, Rory, and Zero, providing a personalized end-to-end telehealth experience from diagnosis to delivery. Our episode with Dr. Barnes was recorded just weeks before COVID-19 broke out in New York City. Where relevant, in our transcript online, we've added additional editor's notes to share more about how Roe and the team have responded to this situation so promptly. We hope you enjoyed this episode. joined today with Dr. Melinda Barnes, known at Roe as Dr. B. Dr. B is the company's Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs and Research. Dr. B has a really fascinating path to Roe. She's a board-certified ENT physician, and she practiced medicine for over five years before joining the company. Dr. B joined Roe in November of 2018, and her chief responsibilities include providing medical and scientific expertise for all of Roe's digital health clinics with a particular focus on quality and safety. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. B. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm going to kick things off with a question that we've started asking a lot of our guests recently that I think has been really interesting to our listeners. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) That's a great question because I actually have this written down in the form of an essay. When I was in first grade, I was Star of the Week. I think all kids made it to be Star of the Week. But you had to write an essay about what you wanted to be when you grew up. And so I wanted to be four things. Okay. Okay. I wanted to be president. I wanted to be a baby doctor. That's, that's exactly how I wrote it, baby doctor. I wanted to write children's novels. And I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast. Those are my... Those are amazing. <laughs> Very specific. You know. Lots of bread <laughs> and what you could do. Um, it's interesting to hear you say baby doctor because that obviously is a little bit of foreshadowing into your role as a clinician and physician, but it's also nice to hear what could have been the other paths not taken. Mm-hmm. So it is it is, it is, is cool to see though that you always had being a doctor in the back of your mind. With that in mind, we'd love to go one level deeper on how you actually kicked off your path, your career path. Can you talk a little bit about your early career in becoming a physician? Absolutely. So it's interesting because the other career aspirations just slowly fell away. So I became too tall to be a gymnast. (laughs) Um, I was really into politics and my mom would take me to the voting polls and I would tell people about the different propositions and what they meant. But then I got really discouraged when the ones didn't, you know, things didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to be. Like, why did people vote yes on this prop? It should have been vote no. And so- How old were you when you did this? Like eight. That's amazing. And then my mom also bought me the book Think Big by Ben Carson. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. That's it. And um, I still like writing a little bit in my free time. So maybe I'll still write a children's book. But um, my career path really started probably at eight. I loved going to the pediatrician. I loved going to my doctor, Dr. Smolinski. Um, He was so funny and smart, and my mom bought me this anatomy textbook when I was eight. I couldn't really read it, but I looked at all the pictures and tried to figure out how the body worked, and I felt like I was joining a secret society of people who knew um, how the body worked, which was very interesting to me because we all have a body, but we all don't know how it Mm -hmm. works. Um, And so 
I continued studying science all throughout uh, middle school and high school. I went to Stanford for undergrad. Um, I majored in biology and Spanish literature. And while at Stanford, um, I did a class at the medical school on neurodegenerative diseases. And so each week we studied a different disease like MS. Um, and it was wonderful because different patients would come in and talk to us. Um, then we'd go to the pathology lab and look at specimens. And so um, it was just always like ingrained that I would be a doctor. I do not have any doctors in my family, but I just was always so enthralled by science and specifically the human body. Um, so after undergrad, went to medical school at Mount Sinai here in New York, continued along the neurodegenerative pathway and worked on a mouse model of um, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and then I started trying to figure out what I wanted to be. And so the natural thing was to continue with neurosurgery. I did some rotations in that. I did a year off of research. And then I realized, wow, neurosurgery is intense. You do these really long, delicate surgeries and the outcomes are not always favorable. And that was really hard for me. And so I liked working above the shoulders. And so ENT became a natural fit, um, has a ton of variety to it. You get to work with kids, adults, sick people, not sick people, chronic disease is acute. And so that was wonderful. I did my training at Stanford, um, loved all five years of it. And then I did an extra year of training to become board certified in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. Um, and after my training there at um, Oregon Health Sciences in Portland, I got my first academic job at Yale. And so that's really where I kicked off my practice. Um, I really enjoyed teaching the residents. I enjoyed uh, teaching patients as I took care of them. And then I ran for a spot to be on Yale Board of Directors, Yale Medical Group. And that was amazing. That's where I fell in love with the other side of medicine, sort of the business of medicine. Um, I was on the finance committee, also worked a lot with network and development. And um, I just found it so fascinating how you could be in a room full of people who are not related to medicine, um, but they were making a lot of decisions. And so um, I really felt like that clinician's point of view needed to be there in the room. Obviously, you've transitioned away from a sole focus on the clinical practice. It sounds like thematically you've had these interests throughout your career, whether it's in writing and expression or advocating for certain propositions and tying that into the clinical practice. So did you see the transition away from um, the clinical side of things as an opportunistic decision or was it always something that was kind of building off of your other experiences and interests over time? Yeah, I think probably second week of medical school, I said, okay, I'm probably not going to be a full-time clinician <laughs> for the rest of my life. And it wasn't because I didn't like medicine. It was because I saw how big the world of medicine is and how like there are so many facets and aspects to it outside of just treating someone one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so yeah, I love being an advocate and working for a company like Roe allows me to advocate for patients on a ginormous, huge scale across the country. Um, I love breaking down complex concepts and scientific principles into easy to understand ideas. Um, so I get to do that as well. And um, so specifically joining Roe, I think, was maybe a little bit opportunistic, but I always knew that I was going to do something else. I just was looking for that right opportunity. How did you know when it was the right time within your career? I think when you feel more excited about, um, you know, talking about how to improve clinical productivity, 
than you do maybe spending a day in clinic. Um, and like I said, I always love taking care of patients and I enjoy it. It's like, that's a nine out of 10. And then what I do now is a 10 out of 10. Um, but when I realized that, hey, I would much rather spend time trying to figure out how we improve our outreach to patients or how do we um, you know, attack the lack of access in healthcare, um, I knew that, okay, this is something special. Most of my colleagues um, enjoy spending most of their time treating patients. And when they leave the hospital, that's it. They're not thinking about other things. They're hanging out with their family and their friends. The fact that I was leaving the hospital and still thinking about these other things meant that I was ready to transition. What's been, in, in making this transition, what's been one of the biggest learnings for you in going from the clinical side of things um, to joining a team that has a little bit more of a multifaceted focus here at Rowe? The biggest learning is that one is, um, as a clinician, we have to be the advocates for the patients. A lot of times we know more about the patient journey than the patient themselves. And I don't mean what it feels like to have the disease or a condition, but in terms of what the ideal interaction between a patient and a physician should look like, or the ideal interaction between the patient and the healthcare system. And so our role is not just to, or my role is not just to write an online visit and make sure that it's medically accurate. It's also to embody and imbue the spirit of that patient-physician relationship into all of our web um, interactions and to make sure that we're always thinking about the doctor-patient relationship from the patient's perspective as well. Like, what's the best um, patient-physician interaction? Because the in-person world may not be the best. We have the opportunity to innovate and make something that is ideal for both the patient and the physician. I think that's a great segue into what Roe has been focusing on for some time. Um, when we chatted a couple weeks ago, you made this really, I thought, compelling point around a lot of the focus on that Rose products have relate to um, conditions that patients can actually self-identify with. It's not as if they're experiencing something and need to go in for a diag diagnosis to a clinician, but they actually recognize that they have hair loss or something else, um, and that really enhances the relationship that um, the clinical team here at Rowe might have with, with that patient. Um, and so just to give our listeners an overview of the other things that Rowe has been working on in those categories, um, there's Roman, which is the digital clinic for men. There's Rory, the digital clinic for women. There's Zero, which is a smoking cessation platform. Plenity, am I saying that correctly? Yes. Okay, coming out in the spring yes. around weight management. Mm -hmm. um, there's a health guide, which is uh, clinical content for patients to give them another place to read up on various conditions. And just a few weeks ago, you launched an allergy treatment platform, which we will get into um, in just a moment. But with all of these different categories and, and focuses of your digital clinic, something I've always been really curious about is, how do you decide what to launch next? The decision-making process about what to launch next is not simple. Um, from my standpoint of view, from the medical side, patient safety is number one. So we're always gonna look for conditions where um, the where having the interaction between the patient and the physician um, having that interaction be online is safe and appropriate. Um, and then we also look at the treatments that are available for that condition. So um, if you have something that is very well known, for instance, you mentioned hair loss, 
um, patients can look in the mirror and say, yes, I have hair loss. But also, if they take a picture or do a video chat, the physician on the other side can also examine them and see that they have hair loss. And they can look and make sure um, that it's not something like scarring alopecia, which is something that we refer for in-person care. Um, so is this something that we can, what are the diagnostic criteria? Um, does the condition need any blood work to, in order to be diagnosed? Um, what are the lookalike conditions and how serious are those? So we wouldn't want to necessarily have a condition on the platform where if um, a physician thought, okay, I think they have condition X, but it's really condition Y, and Y is something that's very serious. Um, so we look into that as well. Same thing for the treatment options. What are the side effects of the medications or the treatments? Uh, is it possible for someone to take this medication incorrectly? If so, what's the worst thing that can happen to them? Um, if someone is having a side effect, how easy is it for them to identify it? So really looking at patient safety. Um, and then uh, to your point, we do talk a lot about conditions where there's a high pain point, where people can feel and acknowledge that they're experiencing the condition. So for men, if you have erectile dysfunction, they know that they have that. It's something that has a very high pain point for them, which means that they're willing to seek help. Um, and when we talked, we contrasted that with something like high cholesterol, where it's completely asymptomatic. Patients don't feel the cholesterol in their blood. They don't know that it's high. Um, that's not going to necessarily get someone to the doctor's office. Now, a sequelae of having high cholesterol might, but just that condition in itself. So our goal really is to meet patients at eye level, meet them where they are, take care of that initial pain point, develop that trust, develop that relationship, and then we can tackle things like high cholesterol, high blood pressure. So how many things do you have sort of in the pipeline at a given moment, or are you constantly just evaluating different areas and figuring out which one's gonna bubble up to the top? Constantly evaluating. We have an entire business operations squad. Um, you know, if you think about it, technology um, is fast-paced and, and ever-changing, and so, for example, as uh, more diagnostic equipment becomes available to use in the home, that changes our algorithm of what conditions we can treat. Because right now, people are walking around with the EKG on their wrists with the Apple Watch. So imagine if um, people were able to have some tools at home that could take their blood pressure, their pulse, their oxygen saturation, their respiratory rate, their temperature. That's all the vitals. Pain, they say, is the sixth vital, and that's subjective, so we can ask them that. Um, we look at things like at-home testing, where you can take uh, your own blood sample or urine sample. That also opens up the spectrum of conditions that we can treat. So we're constantly reevaluating um, what is available, what's necessary, what's that algorithm of diagnostic um, items that are needed. Um, and then, yeah, we see what surfaces to the top. That's great. I, I love hearing about your internal process, and I think for... Our listeners, there are definitely folks um, who are thinking about roles that blend kind of strategic thinking and business development and execution. So thanks for walking us through what that looks like internally. One thing that I've been curious about, um, there's definitely a differentiation with Roe, um, given the specificity of some of the clinical areas that you're looking in. Um, and you're definitely focusing on areas that may have been historically stigmatized across populations. How do you navigate some of these more traditionally taboo topics with your patient populations? So I would say that making, having a condition-specific platform allows us to really hone into all the nuances of that condition. Instead of superficially thinking, okay, someone has hair loss, well, that's just cosmetic, that's not a big thing. No, we can really dive deep and understand the psyche of someone who's going through hair loss. 
Um, we can understand uh, what are the different options? How do you present that to someone? Um, what are the tools that the physician needs to feel comfortable treating someone with this condition? So I think when you look at stigmatized conditions, they're stigmatized because we feel uncomfortable talking about them in public. And the doctor's office should be that safe space where there's no such thing as stigma. You can come and you can say whatever you want to your physician because that's the oath that we take, that we're gonna take care of you, we're not gonna judge you, safe space. And so really the challenge for us is how do you create that safe space virtually? And I think um, the way that you do that is with language. It's how you write the online visit, it's how you write the treatment plan, it's how our wonderful marketing team writes the ads that the patients see um, so that they feel like we get them. I think that's the biggest thing at the end of the day. Do we understand them? Do they feel understood? And um, when we can convey that, that's how you build trust and that's how you eliminate even the feeling of something being stigmatized. Love hearing that. I think um, there's just constantly work to be done in making patients more comfortable and it's, it's great to hear that that's such a priority of yours. Shifting gears a little bit, I wanna make sure we have a moment to talk more about the newest product line that I mentioned around allergies. Um, so to share some context for our listeners, Roe is expanding its treatment of chronic care with the launch of the allergies treatment. Allergies marks the 11th condition that Roe is currently treating on its platform. 50 million people in the United States suffer from allergies, and this product launched at the end of last month. Um, allergies treatment is now, I guess, post-launch, available on both the Roman platform and Rory. And this is one of the first offerings of its kind. Um, so how does this work? Could you talk about what it's like to be adding this and, and what this allergy pro product looks like on the existing platforms? Yeah. So allergies for us was a huge uh, step forward because it's a condition that we launched simultaneously on Roman and Rory. Um, and uh, it's something that is also time specific. So that was great to see our team be able to hit our deadline to be able to launch the product before allergy season hits. Um, but allergies is great. I mean, it's our first kind of foray into what we talked about before. Um, these chronic conditions that are not stigmatized, they're not gender specific, um, and it's something that's very special to me and close to my heart as a board certified ENT. I've treated hundreds of patients for seasonal allergies. Um, I know how daunting and overwhelming it can be to go to CVS or go to the pharmacy and look at the allergy aisle and try to figure out which medication to take. Um, and we know that the majority of patients choose incorrectly in but terms I of... Read, I watched your interview on Cheddar. It's something like 80%. 80%, yes. And you know, the biggest thing is that when medications go over the counter, right, the FDA has to make sure that this is the safest medication. They want to make sure, similarly, that if someone's taking this medication but they don't actually have allergies, they have something else, because they're taking it without the direction of a physician, how long should I let this person take this medication before referring them to the doctor? And so... You'll notice that a lot of medications say two weeks. Take this medication every day for two weeks. If you're not feeling better, talk with a physician. What I find as a physician is that most people interpret that to say, oh, I only need to take this for two weeks and it will take away all of my symptoms. And so what we've put together is an amazing product, which is a combination of nasal sprays and um, pills that attack allergies from different uh, pathways. So um, we have a traditional antihistamine pill um, which is great. It is lasts for 24 hours. You can take it at night, so you don't have to really worry about daytime drowsiness. Um, we have another oral medication 
which um, attacks allergies from a different pathway than histamine. Um, and then the nasal sprays are wonderful because for most people, your allergy symptoms involve your nose and your eyes. And um, so by putting the medication right to where your symptoms are the most, you can get fast delivery. And so for people with severe allergies, typically all four of those medications are needed. Um, the great thing is that the pills you just take once a day at night and the sprays you can take once or twice a day. Um, so it's very low maintenance, low key. And these are all over-the-counter or are these prescriptions? No, so they're uh, prescription medications, yeah. Um, so one follow-up on this. So allergies are definitely an issue that folks might seek assistance from their primary care doctors uh, through an in-person visit, um, much in the same way that folks would use the allergy offering in conjunction with the way that they're using Roe and Ro Rory and um, Roman already. How do you see people using the Roe platforms in conjunction with their existing in-person care teams? Yeah, so um, I think I may have mentioned this before on, um, when we spoke, but I love to you know, say it all the time that 10% of our members are referred to Roman or Rory or Zero by their physician. So that means that they were in a doctor's office and the doctor told them to go online for one of the conditions that we treat. That is huge to me. Um, our big goal is to not be a part of this healthcare fragmentation. We really want our working to have um, a nice integrated healthcare delivery system with in-person care. So we view ourselves as a complement. We're in addition. I think that again, by us being condition specific, we can really dive deep into the nuances of the conditions that we treat. We can provide a really nice end-to-end -end experience for our patients. Um, but at the end of the day, people need to go in and see their doctor. They need to go in and get their flu shot. They need to go in and have their physical or get their colonoscopy. Um, so our goal is to work together. And what that does is that frees up the time for the in-person clinicians to spend more time with the sick patients that need more than seven minutes with their doctor. It means that patients hopefully won't have to wait 29.1 days to get in to see a doctor. Um, it means that patients won't have to wait three hours in the waiting room because we can handle um, the conditions that we treat, we can handle patients that are lower risk, we can handle healthy patients, and we can help monitor chronic diseases. I mentioned um, an overview of the allergy offering. Roe currently covers 11 conditions. Um, I also know that Roe has built everything from the actual patient application to the EMR to the pharmacy process, which for a young company is just an insane achievement. Um, all, each of those things could be businesses in, in themselves. So it's, it's really impressive, an impressive undertaking. What else can we expect from the team in 2020? Ooh, you're asking for insights. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, more uh, along those same things. Um, so, uh, you know, right now my team is really focusing on quality and safety as we always do, but really um, optimizing the EMR to uh, give what we like to say give our providers superpowers so how do we really leverage technology to not only meet the standard of in-person care but to supersede that i think the technology by giving doctors superpowers so an example would be like a drug interaction checker as a physician there's no way i can remember all of the interactions with every medication that i might prescribe someone but computers can and so we can have things like drug interaction checkers in our EMR system so that any time a doctor is prescribing a medication, it's automatically checking to make sure with the patient's home meds 
that there are no interactions. And if there are, the doctor can counsel the patient about that. Um, how do we get our doctors to really practice at the top of their license? So that means getting rid of all of the administrative front office things that doctors are dealing with right now, getting prior approval or calling the pharmacy. Um, when we, uh, by owning every step of the pathway, we can really make that journey for the patient and the physician seamless. Um, so working to improve that. Um, and then of course, we'll have some new conditions coming out as well. Um, and we're excited for Planity to launch. Um, we're excited for our partnership with Pfizer Greenstone and providing um, FDA authorized generics to our members for Sildenafil um, and for generic Viagra. So, you know, more amazing things. Lots of stuff happening. And how big is the team at Roe overall to ballpark? Around 200 wow. people, yes. That's a lot happening <laughs> for one. I don't want to say it's a small team, but it's definitely, it's a, it's a mighty team for the size, the number of people that you have. It is. Everyone here is just so amazing. You talked about the transition. I feel like as a clinician, usually your partners um, every day that you're working with are the patients. And so we're doing a lot of teaching and explaining. Um, but when I came to Roe, my colleagues are at the top of their game and everything from communications to marketing to product engineering. And that was just so amazing to work with such intelligent people in fields that I had never heard of. Um, and uh, it's been such a, an amazing journey for me to just have like amazing people to work with. I mean, you're summarizing why I love working in the health tech space. <laughs> you just get to see people who are experts in all these different areas really come together and make great things happen, superpowers, so to speak, to quote, to quote what you guys are working on on some of the provider initiatives. It's really interesting to hear from you in particular, given your experience on both the clinical and the business side. Um, you're obviously well positioned to liaise across multiple groups of people. Um, in your mind, how do you suppose the world of business and medicine can continue to collaborate? So I remember when I was an undergrad, I think, um, that word of business and medicine, that phrase collaboration was kind of taboo, right? It was like, keep industry out of the hospital, keep it pure. We no longer want, you know, pharmaceutical companies flying doctors, places and everything. And then when I came back to Stanford for a residency, business and medicine collaboration was an amazing thing. It was like, okay, let's take our science and get it into the hands of industry so that they can make this marketable and get it out to people. And so I think that communication, I see a lot of companies launching that um, are in the health tech space without any clinician presence in their founding or the, the, the initial team that's bringing the company to light. And I think that that's, um, that's a little unfortunate because as again, as a clinician, we bring a point of view that's patient advocacy, also physician advocacy, but also really knowing what that healthcare journey is like. And uh, sometimes things are great ideas on paper, um, but when you present it to the real life healthcare setting, it doesn't take off. And I think it's because there's sometimes a mismatch between what like patients and providers need and what the outside world thinks they can innovate in. Um, and so I think, yeah, business medicine collaboration, I think it's really unlimited. When you put smart people together, I think we can really fix the healthcare delivery system and we can really make it um, something that um, requires, is going to push in-person providers to provide higher quality of care because industry is going to innovate. Um, and so in that setting, everyone wins. 
and how bringing it back to sort of how you um, combine all of these cross-functional individuals within the ecosystem at Roe, why do you think you've been so successful at that? I think, uh, well, everyone here that I work with, um, again, they're super amazing. I think we all have a sense of humility. We know where our expertise ends in our lane, I would say. Um, and so to that extent, we're all very open to hearing from other people. We have a lot of cross-functional teams, um, cross-functional meetings. So like our medical team meets with the product team weekly. We meet with product design. Um, we have medical legal office hours, so marketing and um, other teams can come and, and pitch ideas and we can sit down together and collaborate. Um, we've started working with collaboration earlier in the process. So instead of thinking of medical or legal as teams that you need to get approval checkbox, now we're all getting together at the beginning when someone has an idea. What about launching X or what about adding this capability to the platform? We can all powwow together add our different point of views, um, and then we can iterate along that whole pathway instead of waiting until the end, and then medical or legal's like, ah, what's this? Um, I think that kind of raises a good point on the flip side is, I imagine that a lot of these successes came after working through challenges uh, and, and potential impediments. Can you talk about some of the challenges that the team has seen over the course of your time here? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, probably uh, one of the challenges that's really close to my heart is launching Rory. I mean, that was a Herculean effort as we were launching a completely new vertical and brand um, within the company. I like to say we're a startup within a startup. Um, but with Rory, what we saw was that education is key. And so when we were launching Roman um, and launching something like erectile dysfunction and Viagra, um, the team could really benefit from 20 years of direct-to-consumer marketing, right? Viagra, ED, those are mainstream topics and conditions and medications. Um, and so uh, if you contrast that with Rory and something like vaginal dryness or estradiol or hot flashes, not very mainstream. Even women experiencing those conditions needed to be educated on that. And so with Roman, we could focus on the check engine light that... ED is not just a condition in itself, but it could be a sign of something bigger happening in a man's life. With Rory, we had to go all the way back to the beginning and just start educating women about menopause, give them the language and the tools to express the conditions and, and symptoms that they were experiencing. Then we can build trust and get them to come and see the doctors on the platform. But we had to start back with educating them about their own body. And I think that was something um, that was a little bit of a challenge because I was new. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier where you, a lot of these symptoms are things that patients can self-identify, but if they don't recognize that what they're experiencing is even a problem that if you're able to treat, then there's a lot of patient education that comes with that. I think what we've seen in the industry is there are definitely a lot of mixed responses to telemedicine and the opportunity that it provides or its effectiveness. Can you talk to me about why Roe is so bullish on the future of telemedicine and what role you think Roe will play in the growth of this area within healthcare? Yeah, so telemedicine, I think that a lot of people have a narrow definition of telemedicine. So uh, some people think only of the synchronous video chats with your provider. Um, but the truth is, if you take a step back, anytime you message your doctor through one of those secure portals and they message you back, 
and you talk about a symptom and they ask you more questions and maybe they prescribe a treatment or a medication, that's telemedicine. And so there is a huge adoption of telemedicine already. It's just in a different form than what most people think of. And so um, because of that, and I think also we, we're not saying that telemedicine is the only future of healthcare. We're saying that telemedicine is a great tool that can help in the healthcare delivery system and it can help alleviate a lot of the burden that's on the healthcare system right now. I can't think of another tool right now that allows a doctor in New York to treat patients in Kentucky or Virginia or rural Georgia. I don't know, we don't have holograms yet, so um, <laughs> having something like telemedicine is amazing. This can really help us address physician shortage. It can help us address the fact that people who live in rural communities are five, six, seven hours away from a doctor. It also can address the single mother who's an hourly worker who can't take off from work because then she has to decide between her health care and actually putting food on the table. With telemedicine, she can see her doctor in the middle of the night or on her lunch break when it's convenient for her. So when you think about just access, safety, quality, transparency, um, all of those things that I think telemedicine can um, address, then that's why we're super focused. Uh, for us, our goal is to be the patient's first call. And our goal is really to be the industry standard for telemedicine. Um, there are other players in the space, but I think for condition specific and also that end-to-end -end of the patient application, the physician EMR and the pharmacy, um, we are the leaders in that space and we'll continue to push um, what we can do and add more capabilities, especially as technology gets better. Can you share more about how, in that process, thinking about end-to-end -end from at least the patient perspective, how do patients pay for the interaction that they're having with Roe? So the um, physician's visit is uh, $15, and then they pay for the cost of their treatment. The shipping is free, um, so they're paying for basically their medication. Can you talk a little bit about the decision-making behind um, offering Roe as a cash pay treatment system as opposed to running it through insurance? Yeah. So I think what, you can, what we saw is that you can innovate a lot um, in that cash pay environment. So for better or worse, our insurance system in the United States is super complicated. There are tons of restrictions. And we know of examples of other companies that have tried to offer services to their members but have been unable to because of contracts that they have with the insurance companies. And so with that, we don't have those restrictions. We have the freedom to try to figure out how do we best serve our patients without also having to adhere to what insurance company X wants in Kentucky or New York. Um, and so I think for a company, like you mentioned, two years old, starting out from the beginning, Having something be cash pay where we can negotiate um, with different manufacturers because of our size um, was, was the right move for us. And then on the physician side as well, um, $15 is less than most people's copay. So um, again, talking about access and getting this into the hands of, of everybody. That was, a, that was a really important part for us as well. And I think then from the patient perspective, then they know exactly what something costs and they're not hit with a bill later on that says, oh, also this 20-minute interaction that you maybe didn't even know that you had cost something else with insurance and a deductible. So I do see how it, it can simplify things from the patient perspective. You just put the price tag out there and then they know exactly what they're paying.
paying for it. And hopefully that transparency that we have, here's what you pay for the doctor visit, here's what you pay for your medication, will help force transparency in the insurance world and in the in-person world where you get a bill or you get this explanation of benefits and I'm like, I mean, I'm a physician and I don't even <laughs> understand. And I'm like, wait, so do I have to pay this or who do I pay? Where does the I money? Pay? Like, what? Where is this bill coming from? And they're like, oh no, that's just what we've told the hospital will reimburse them, but you know, all this other stuff. So, um, I think just taking the complexity out of healthcare, right? Patients, if you're sick or you're experiencing um, a, a problem or a condition. The last thing you want to do is try to figure out if something's covered by your insurance. You just want help, and you just want help from a trusted physician, a trusted resource, and so that's what we're here to provide. I think it's an awesome mission, and I think as you continue to expand into new areas, um, that will just continue to provide more and more benefits to patients and physicians alike. So really exciting to hear about all the progress that you've made and all that we have to look forward to. I think as one final question, um, just given your career transition and the amazing path that you've had to date. What's one piece of advice that you give to listeners who might be contemplating a career change of their own? I would say go with your gut. Um, everything that I have wanted has been on the other side of fear. And really it's fear of what are, you know, what are my colleagues going to say? What's my fellowship director going to say? What's my residency program going to say? Am I letting people down? Um, and when I just stepped back and said, okay, I'm the only person who has to wake up and be me every day. I'm the only person who has these goals or ideas. Um, and so with that in mind, let me have the freedom to explore it. And so for people who are thinking of transitioning, one, I would say, um, you know, write down your ideas, write down what you think is keeping you from making that transition. Start networking, reach out to um, people who are doing the things that you like. And then when you're ready, take the leap. It is so worth it. Thank you so much, Dr. B, for your wisdom and for sharing more about Rowan and its platform. It's been great having you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh,